Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, Cost-Effectiveness of Widespread Non-Invasive NASH Testing and Treatment. This conversation explores possible future pathways for NASH therapy in a future world with multiple classes of agents. In different ways, each of the surfers discusses how cost-effective patient treatment might actually provide the right medicine for the right patient all along the therapeutic path. In this regard, what makes NASH a little different is that because the liver can heal itself, doctors will need to manage drug use during the disease regression process, if all goes well, as well as solving disease progression. This is a different way of thinking, all driven by the groundbreaking cost-effectiveness work Mazen and others have brought forward. You'll want to hear it. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, as they discuss the cost-effectiveness of widespread patient testing using non-invasive techniques today on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Based on everything you've been looking at on cost and cost-effectiveness related to screening and an understanding of how insurance companies are likely to operate in the States, what is the list price of an agent at which you suspect sirens will go off? And if you don't want to answer that question, I'll give you a couple of hypotheses and you can say yes, no, maybe so. <laughs> so you can do actually decision trees, meaning you can have prices and you can ask yourself, again, there are multiple areas. For instance, let's say drug S. I'm giving you an example. So is it effective for screening for a price of $2,000 a month? That needs to be modeled. I would imagine probably not. But this drug S can also be, on the other hand, if the disease already discovered, meaning you're not spending money on screening, is it effective in treating NASH and F3, for instance? So those are different questions of a different price tag. And health economists will answer this in more sophisticated and very detailed, but this is lay idea. We, we, We try to build decision trees on the price target for screening. And I can tell you it's probably not going to be an expensive drug that will help us get to the screening. And that's why intensive intensive life intervention turned to be cost effective. I'll, I'll tell you what's the cost of intensive life intervention was these meetings and, you know, uh, dietitian, all that. It was about 2900 within that 12 months with all these visits and interventions. I don't remember the highest price that we got to and was not cost effective. We modeled a certain drug based on future prediction of its price and it was not cost effective. But again, like we're predicting what they're going to price their medication. So it's a unfair game for now. The, the day I met Stephen, I was on a stage telling 180 total strangers that the prices that I was hearing people flying around for their F2 NASH drugs made no sense to me. And they were in the, I guess the $1,500 to $2,000 a month range was what I was hearing. And I said, I don't know very much about this disease, but if the population 
valuation estimates, I'm looking at are even close to right for anybody in F2 or even early F2, maybe even F1, some people fantasize. Those numbers don't sound like they're going to add up. Actually, I think it's more complicated than this. And I'm interested in Stephen's opinion as well. So it is not just the, okay, it's too expensive for Nash F2. The question is, is it going to be like diabetes? I'm going to use it forever. Or is it going to be, well, I have a patient with Nash F2. I'm going to use the number used, $2,000 a month. And all I need is a couple of years to reverse it from F2 to F1 or F2 to F0 in three years. I'm just throwing random examples. And then I'll switch them back to weight loss and exercise or have another cheaper drug. So there are a lot of factors that play a role in this decision duration, which F you're going to stop, if there are T-ball drugs that you can continue with. What do you think, Stephen? I'm, this is very crystal ball, I guess, kind of area that people needs needs to predict. Well, we'd like to go where no one's gone before. So, Stephen, go ahead. This could be a whole nother discussion in and of itself, but just kind of the way I see this landscape shaping up is I divide NASH into F1, F2, then F3, F4, and I overlay that with comorbidities that the patient might have. So, heart disease, kidney disease, both, diabetes, you know, do they need glycemic control as well as atherogenic lipid control? And then I look at oral therapy versus injectable therapy. So, when we look at injectables, we got the GLP-1s, the FGF-19s, and the 21s. They all move fat in a very rapid and sustainable way. There's really positive impacts on the histopathologic parameters, even as early as 12 and 16 weeks. But they all come with some degree of GI tolerability issues. So I think they're going to be targeted more toward the F3, F4 population, whereas the orals that are safe, well-tolerated, once daily, like icosabutate, for instance, or resmeterone. Those will be targeted as more long-term therapy. So you could envision a situation where, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze. Let's use the injectable. Let's slow the freight train down from heading toward the edge of the cliff. Let's back them up a little bit, treat them for six months, nine months, then transition them over to an oral that's safe, well-tolerated with no adverse events that has a favorable atherogenic lipid profile like a resmeterone or maybe some additional glycemic control benefit like a structurally engineered fatty acid, for instance. And, and there are other therapies. I'm, I'm not, this isn't a comprehensive discussion on, on how we manage these people, but then, then there's combination therapy, right? So I think there's a lot of ways to play it. But to me, if I have a cirrhotic in clinic, it's well compensated or an advanced F3, I'm going to want to try to treat them relatively aggressively and then maybe switch them over to something for a, the long road, like a diabetic or a hypertensive or a hyperlipidemic patient. The thought behind my question which I think you touched on, but is, and Stephen certainly touched on, is this is all going to get a lot more complicated. I didn't say that you couldn't charge $2,000 a month for a NASH drug. I said that if you plan to have lifetime therapy with F2 patients, you can't do, you, that might not work. You're right, yes. I'm right where you are on that. The other thought I've got, and I used to model this from the other side for drug companies and occasionally for insurers, is that the insurers will be advised by everybody they know, and they're not going to need a lot of advice on this, to take an extremely conservative position on how many people are going to be able to discontinue or step down to a much cheaper drug how quickly? Because what they're always looking for is where on the slippery slope you have exposure that you can't control. You're right on. Um, we already actually, with the insurance companies, many of us have had conversations. And I think we saw the first wave, like, holy cow, there's 80 million people, that they're going to be 100 million people in 2030. Which one of those we need to treat? So we have we had to do a lot of assurance that it's not this entire population 
generation. It's the subset. Initially, it was Nash. Now we're targeting Nash and F2. That lifestyle intervention prevention still play a role. But you're right. That's a very smart point that they will ask us at one point, when can we stop that, for example, $2,000 drug on F2? And it's for sure it's going to be different from F3 patient. And not to mention the cirrhotics, if something works at the end, difficult population, it might be even longer duration. So it's fascinating area that I think all of us should continue to focus on patients' good outcome and benefit Why we're trying to convince everyone to do the right thing. Is there an added benefit to the screening? Because yes, you're looking for the methyl-D population and NASH at F3 and above realistically. But when we intervene, certainly with Fibroscan, on people who've been admitted for drinking, even if they've only broken an arm and they've been admitted overnight, by just highlighting a poorer liver health alters behaviour. And we know there's a significant number of people with diabetes who drink just to a level that affects their liver. If we are able to, in your screening, anybody over the age of um, 40, I think you said, didn't you? We have the ability then to change behavior without specifically targeting a lot of people who will just step back and say, I can make an alteration here. I can now see it. I can now find it. So the added cost benefits to people stopping drinking in uh, sort of higher uh, proportion, are those figured into the work you've done or would they just be currently excessive and better gains, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, we, we wanted a clean NAFL NASH picture. You bring in an excellent point, though. It's uh, It might lead to health benefit in other areas like this. I think you're tapping on the area of BASH, which is both alcoholic steatohepatitis and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So you would imagine if we have good data to add to that, it will, the NAFL by itself was cost-effective in diabetics more than 40. So you'll imagine there will be probably additional cost. I, I can tell you also like one quick point that we were questioned about. They said, well, the diabetics are recommended to follow a lifestyle intervention anyways. So what you're doing here is what is already recommended for type 2 diabetics. And in addition that you will make them more aware that they have underlying liver disease and all that, and they will get better. Our intervention, which was that study that improved fibrosis in these patients by 10%, is different what's what's recommended currently on type 2 diabetics. It's two steps beyond that. So you need to apply that to get the benefit as well. But your point is well taken in, in terms of other hidden benefits, not to mention it will probably also improve the type 2 diabetes better. So first of all, as the country singer Chris Christopherson wrote a long time ago, you're reading Louise's mail. This is a concept that she raises frequently in different contexts, all the benefits of screening people before they even have a problem. And I think you certainly touched on one of them, which is maybe they won't have the problem that we're screening them for. But as you're saying, they may also not have related problems with their diabetes if they do a good enough job of touching that earlier. So that's a great point. I'm going to want to make that the point on which we go to final question, except to say that, Mazen, I'd, like, I'd love for you to come back sometime in May or June. And what I'd love for us to do is focus on exactly what you started to lay out with Stephen, which is when you visualize the development of drugs and the economics of disease over time and the way different countries and different insurers might look at testing, if we started to get a very hazy vision of what the long-term downstream therapeutic options might look like, not which drugs, but how do people at different points in the disease continuum get treated differently, taking into account economics and what we know about the liver and all that, what would that look like? Because it's a question I get asked frequently, which is if you had to make this up, what would you do? And I kind of start a little bit where Stephen did or where you did, but the complexity is pretty overwhelming pretty quickly. Indeed. And I, I think that conversation can be structured in by fibrosis stage, by duration, and by 
drug classes, I, I do agree with you, is not easy and it's complex and it might look hazy, predictive in June, but we can take a, a prediction shot at it. I, I think that I think that sounds like a great idea. I very much want to do that. So let's just move on to the last question. If it exists, one thing you heard in the last hour that made you think about anything differently, or if that didn't happen, one thing you'd like the audience to think about differently than you believe they do today. The biggest thing, I, I, I just need to be Mason's broker because he is the guy that's going to address all these questions for us and make it crystal clear on what the pricing should be, who we should screen, what therapies we should use in what order. I mean, the world is your oyster, Mason, and I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insight with us today. And Louise, your questions are always spot on and filled with data. So thanks for that. Steven, it's three team efforts and thanks to you and many other researchers in this field. But thank you. You're just reiterating the Michael Jordan of, of, of the topic. Even I know who Michael Jordan is. I'm still going to go with Steph Curry. Uh, I think the, 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 he really gave me a project. I think Steven's points that to look for cost-effective screening for HCC and non-serotic NASH can be helpful because, again, I, I really start this from the patients I have seen. I have I've seen so many that they came with just HCC without knowing they had fatty liver disease and turned out to be cirrhotics. So no one wants to know that, oh my God, I had something called fatty liver and that led to cancer and no one told me to screen or even what to do about it. So I, I think all of us, if we keep you know pushing the effort into increasing awareness, looking at the right things, finding the right treatments, moving away from biopsy to NITs, we will make a difference in the next five years. I think the thing that excites me is the fact that we are getting closer to people really taking note and screening a population. And Marsden's work drives that really nicely. So we're starting to get to that area of early identification, giving people opportunities to not die of a, a disease, aka the example that you gave that was not uncommon, but is a sad story. And they are all early deaths. And that excites me that we can get that out there. We can start to look backwards and backwards and backwards, and it becomes a wellness issue. Nobody needs to die in the future of a disease that takes so long to cause cirrhosis if we can start to screen at a really good time point. But awareness in the diabetes and endocrinology population, I think, will come as a result of this. And there's some excellent endocrinologists and nurse specialists in those areas that can really take hold of this and run with it. So well done, and thank you. Amen to that. That and, and Mazen, just one more well done from a different direction. I think I gave myself up already when I told you what the next episode should be about. But I think as a society, we've never been terribly sophisticated in terms of figuring out how to begin to introduce first and second pharmacotherapies into existing diseases. You've got people clamoring for, quote, a cure, unquote. And as a result, we tend to rush into things headfirst or we hold back from them based on some fairly shaky economics. And we don't contemplate early enough and adequately to tell totality of what we're going to be doing downstream and how do we want to treat and what does that mean? So on that level, I think this is a, I think your work is amazing. Crediting everyone else needs to be credited. Okay. But I think the work is amazing. And I think the questions that, that you are asking and that hepatology is asking about this forebode much more thoughtful and better treatment for patients once we get to the point where some of these agents we're looking at start coming to market and we have the ability to treat people differentially based on exactly what it is we're trying to do. And we thought about that in advance. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, 
please send an email to questions at surfingmash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode, and we will release our next episode on Wednesday, March 31st. At that time, our guest will be Dr. Ian Rowe, who will discuss some of the work he and his colleague, Dr. Richard Parker, are conducting about cost-effective screening and treatment with their population in Leeds, UK. Theirs is a different way of looking at cost-effectiveness because of the significant differences between the U.S. and U.K. healthcare systems. I hope you will join us then. Till then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.